We're in Matthew chapter 7 this morning. So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. So if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. This is a crazy place where crazy things happen. Um, But seriously, we are currently teaching through Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, found here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And contrary to what many people think, Christians included, the Sermon on the Mount is not teaching us how to get into the kingdom of God. It is not teaching us how we get saved, how salvation happens or new birth happens. The Bible makes it very clear that entrance to God's kingdom is only through grace. Grace is a huge word in the Bible, and it means unearned favor. So what we see in scripture is that nobody is worthy, no one is good enough, no one is strong enough to bring themselves into the kingdom of God, and God knows that. He knows our brokenness, he knows our frailty, he knows our sinfulness, that we have this inner twistedness and brokenness. We fail to live the life that we should. And so what God does is God comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lives a perfect life. He dies a death in our place, taking our sin, identifying with the pain and suffering of the world and he takes it all there on the cross and he he consumes it there in his body dying for us three days later rising again for our justification so that we can be part of God's kingdom so that we can be children of God and that is the gospel that God offers every single human to be part of his family to be part of his kingdom all you have to do is say, Jesus, I'm with you. Jesus, I'm going to follow you. Give your allegiance, your loyalty to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. The sermon is also not teaching us how we stay in the kingdom. That's another misunderstanding. We think, oh, you have to do these things, and if you don't do all of these things, then you're out, right? That's not really what it's about either. This sermon is a description of what kingdom people look like, of what it means to follow Jesus, of what it looks like when Jesus' life takes up residence in our life. This is what it looks like when Jesus is a king over your life. This is what it looks like to pledge allegiance to Jesus as king and to the kingdom of God. Now, though anyone can listen and learn from this sermon, and many people have throughout history, Its primary audience and focus is the disciple of Jesus. And this sermon has been used for centuries to shape and form God's people into the way of Jesus. And we believe that this is what God will do for us as well. And so this morning, I wanted to come back to verse 12 because it is worthy of more thought and attention than we were able to give it in our last study. Now, as we've been saying throughout these teachings, Jesus' sermon is not so much about doing, as I said, right? It's not you do these things and you're a part of the kingdom. You keep doing these things and you stay in the kingdom. It's not about doing. And this is something I really hope that sticks with us as after we're done with the Sermon on the Mount, as we go on as a church and grow. The Sermon on the Mount is about being. It's about being a kind of people. Jesus is transforming his people into a people who do righteousness, that is right relationships, the right thing, because that's the kind of people that they are. It's the kind of people that we have become by his spirit and his grace working in us. Now, the golden rule is then a radically practical tool for helping us change our behavior and thought by getting us to think deeper and personally about our reactions and actions toward people and situations. Now, I don't know if you had this experience, but this is, this is my personal experience. I grew up in the church. My dad is a minister. My grandfather, his father-in-law, is a minister. I grew up going to Sunday school, Bible studies, memorizing scripture, the whole thing you know, that you would expect from a, a Christian family. And as I grew into adolescence and then on into adulthood, I found that there were sins in my life 
that had grown and grown. And I found that though I knew scripture and was being raised in a Christian environment, I was looking more and more like people that were not Christians. I did the same things that they did. I spoke to people the same way that they spoke to people. I treated people the same way that people that didn't know Jesus treated people. And I began to look at scripture and say, what is wrong with me? I believe that Jesus is king. I believe that Jesus is Lord. Why don't I look like Jesus? Why don't I act like Jesus? Why is it that whenever I open my Bible, I feel condemned? And so I sought this out. What what was I told? Well, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, I thought I was when I became a Christian. I thought that's what happened. You were given the Holy Spirit. And so I sought out what we commonly call second baptism or the Pentecostal blessing. And so I would go and, you know, stand in line at a service and I'd ask the pastors to pray for me because I have secret sin in my life. I have besetting sin, you know, as we would call it. Um, Sin that I just couldn't get rid of. What was wrong with me? And so they pray for me. Oh, you need the gift of tongues. Okay, well, I still only speak English. Like, tried so many times. Truly. And I wanted it. I wanted it all. And I would have these prayers. Lord, I want whatever you have for me. I want to do those things. After many, many years of condemnation, of doubt about my salvation, I began to really look at Scripture and saw that what we're called to in Scripture is not so much to go out and seek a second baptism, a second blessing, not just to read scripture, but to put it on, to practice it. And here's what I actually believe now. I believe that you can be a Christian simply by faith in Jesus, allegiance with Jesus, but be in such a state of immaturity, be in such a state of uh, looking so much like non-Christians and pagans because you have not put on the scripture. And the New Testament talks so much about this. It has this double thing that Christians are called to do. If then you have been raised with Christ, we're told, put to death those old ways of speaking, those old ways of thinking, those old ways of acting, and put on the new man. Put on the new humanity. Put on the fruit of the spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Put these things on, I means try them on, practice these things. And you guys, I, for many, many years, I was so confused thinking that I had to be zapped by the Holy Spirit. And then that's when my life would begin looking like Jesus, but no, it was a day in, day out, putting off, putting on, practicing the way of Jesus. And you know what, one day I woke up and I responded in the way that scripture tells me that I should respond as a child of God. What happened? By habit, repetition of the way of Jesus, life in the spirit becomes second nature. Becomes the way that I am. Becomes the way that you are. All of a sudden we are people that do righteousness. Why? Because it's become second nature. Just like anything else. It's nature and it's nurture, right? And that's what scripture tells us. We've been given a new nature and now we are called to nurture that nature. Nurture that nature. So that we become like Christ. So that we walk as he walked. And I believe that that is the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. And so it isn't just enough for us to sit here and say, peacemakers, huh? Yes, I agree with that. I hope that we all agree with that. The call, the challenge is to put it on. Will you put on peacemaking? And I imagine that for many of our relationships, we do put that on. But where and with who do we really need to practice peacemaking? Where is it a challenge to be a peacemaker? Where is it a challenge to be merciful? Where is it a challenge to do the right thing? Who is challenging me? to do justice, to spend my resources and my things for somebody that doesn't necessarily deserve it. That's what this sermon is about. And now we come to this incredible 
incredibly practical tool that Jesus gives us, this filter for trying it on in our everyday relationships. Whatever you would want others to do for you, do for them. This is the law and the prophets. An incredible tool for molding us and shaping us into the people of God. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us an earthy religion, one that is put in the soil of humanness and human relationships. We can practice it. We can put it on. So then the golden rule, treat others as you would want to be treated, is not so much a rule, but rather a vision that Jesus is calling his people into. An invitation to virtue by giving us a vision of how to relate to other people. A practical outworking of the human wholeness and greater righteousness that Jesus has been teaching us about in the sermon. Now, if we go back to chapter 517, we see that Jesus began there casting a vision for his disciples of what true righteousness looks like. Remember, a righteousness that fulfills the law and the prophets. You remember that passage? He says, don't think that I've come to destroy, to undo the law and the prophets. No, I tell you, I have come to fulfill them. I'm going to fill them up. I'm going to give them wholeness. I'm going to give them meaning. He's going to give a vision for righteousness that fulfills the law and the prophets. And then Jesus ends that whole section from 517 all the way to 712 with these words. So whatever you wish others would do for you, do also for them, for this is the law and the prophets. He summarizes it all. Here's another way to put this. Let's talk about this. The law and the prophets. Another way to put it. So the way you want others to treat you is the way you should treat others. This is what much of the Bible is about. Isn't it? It's a little different when you read it like that, isn't it? So, of course, the law and the prophets would have been the Bible of Jesus' day. The law would include the Psalms, the Tanakh. How you would want to be treated, do that. This is what much of the Bible is about. When I read that translation, I was like, hmm, this is what much of the Bible is about. Wow, okay. Does that seem like an oversimplification? It does to me. Honestly, as a pastor, as a student of the Bible, I was like, whoa, that's not what much of the Bible's about. Come on. There's so much in there about sacrifice and offering and holiness and, you know, our posture before God. Those are the, that's where I went, right? Well, Jesus was not the first to simplify the Old Testament teaching. There's actually a story that comes from the Babylonian Talmud about two of Judaism's greatest rabbis. Listen to this. Once there was a Gentile, a non-Jew, who came before Shammai and said to him, convert me on the condition that you teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one foot. Shammai pushed him aside with the measuring stick he was holding. He dismissed him. Like, get out of here, you fool. The same fellow came before Hillel. And Hillel converted him. How? Saying this. That which is despicable to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. Everything else is commentary. Isn't that fascinating? This is it. Everything else is like footnotes, commentary, personal comment. How you do it. So it was common practice in Jesus' time to actually summarize the law and the prophets in this way. Another place, Jesus summarizes the whole law in two commands. Remember that? There was a lawyer that was trying to catch Jesus, trying to test him, uh, trying to find holes in his practice and his doctrine. And so he said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Comes from Matthew 22, 35 through 40. Another place, Paul in the book of Romans at the very end when he is summarizing for us the life that follows what Jesus has done, saving us, redeeming us. Paul says this, well, Here's the practice of being a Christian. Owe no one anything except to love them. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So I want us to think about that for a minute. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is what the Bible is about. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the Bible. Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For all the commandments can be summarized in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for the last year at Refuge, at least, we have been looking at how three of the most reoccurring themes of the Old Testament are relational themes, righteousness. Remember, in the Old Testament, righteousness is not the term that is used, uh, that we often use, you know, like if we're studying the book of Romans, you know, we think of righteousness, we think of justification, declared righteous, imputed righteousness. But the word righteousness in the Old Testament is a word called sedica, and it means more like justice, or to do what is right, to do what is true. The idea is being in right relationship with your common man. Sedeca, that's the word in scripture. Another word is very like it, it's mishpat, and it's the word for justice. When you bring the two of these together, the idea is social justice, that you are seeking those who are in need and you're lifting them up to their right station. You're putting them in right relationship with yourself, you're putting them in right relationship with everyone else, making an equal plane, and the Bible says this brings shalom. This is the atmosphere that God has created humans to live in, one of righteousness and justice, and it brings shalom, peace, a positive peace, a well-being, a um, beautiful neighborhood, if you will, of interpersonal relationships. And as I said, these... That's what the Bible, as we've been seeing, this, these are huge themes that reoccur over and over and over again, standards and teachings dealing with interpersonal relationships. So it really is true that most of the Bible is about how we live in right relationship with one another. Sometimes we fail to see that according to scripture, true spirituality in large part consists in being human with other humans. Just think about this for a minute. In our individualistic, autonomous society, what is easier oftentimes for us is to take my Bible and try to be Christian on my own. Why? Because I have a faceless, if you will, God, if you will. I have a God, you know, who is invisible, as the Bible says. And I, you know, I don't have to see God face to face. I don't have to show up and yeah, I can hide from him, so to speak. I can kind of hide things in my life uh, away from his view. I can't really, but I think I can, right? That's, that's, the Bible tells us this again and again. But I think what we can do is we can fool ourselves into thinking that we can have a relationship with God without having a relationship with other people. The Bible says you cannot. The Bible says you say you love God, but you despise your brother. You disregard your brother or sister. The love of God is not in you. How, how can we say we love God, but we hate people that have been made in his image? Or how can we say we know God when our life is just filled with just broken relationships? And I understand that there are, it, that's nuanced. I understand that not all of those situations are our faults. But the Bible, again, says that even if they aren't, we're to be a people of reconciliation. We're to be a people of peace. And what I see in the church often is that people just want to disconnect it's easier to have a personal relationship with God than it is to have a communal church relationship, a vibrant interpersonal relationship. But this is where we get it wrong because true spirituality in scripture has to do with humans being human with other humans. That's what God has redeemed us for in part to be human, to live in relationship with one another as he lives in relationship with the Father. Remember John 17? 
Oh, Father, my desire is that they would be one as you and I are one. That is the prayer of Jesus Christ to the Father. The the inner relationships of the Trinitarian God, that that would be manifested in us. That that's the way that we would love and serve and bless one another. The same way that Father and Son love, serve, and bless each other. This is where more liberal Christians usually get it right. That might be hard for some of you. Uh, The Bible cares nothing for a spirituality or holiness that is not concerned with personal relationship with humans. Cares nothing for it. It's a lie. You are self-deceived. You don't know God. You don't have a relationship with God. So that brings us back to, we gotta examine, right? We gotta work this out. We see often in the Bible, God is not about religious form and function as he often and so clearly points out. I think about one passage, um, this comes from the prophets. God says to the people, they're sacrificing, they're offering, they're doing the festivals and feasts that God called them to do in the law. What does God say? I hate your sacrifices. Your religious feasts are a stink in my nose. Like, oh, all right, God, we get the picture, you know, like, chill out. So what does he want? What does he love? He says, let justice roll like the river and righteousness, excuse me, righteousness like a never-ending stream. What I want to graciously pound into our heads this morning is that Christianity is a humanitarian religion. It is a humanitarian religion and has a very, very high, high view of humanity. A very high view of the body, in fact. A very high view of sex and interpersonal relationships and the family. A high, high view because we have been made in the image. We are the only creature made in the image of the one true God. It's a humanity, excuse me, a humanitarian religion. It cares for, loves, and gives dignity and worth to every man, woman, and child from the cradle to the grave. It measures true Christ-likeness and godliness to the amount that we love and treat others with kindness, forgiveness, mercy, and love. And church, we need to guard ourselves, especially in this day and age. We need to guard ourselves against a Christianity of spiritualism that fails to see that we are on earth largely to be human with other humans. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount is about human flourishing, human wholeness. And a large part of that is our personal relationships with one another. I'm often struck by the way the Apostle Peter describes the life and ministry of Jesus. I've pondered this many times. When he's telling some Gentiles the gospel for the first time, people that don't know anything about Jesus at all, this is how Peter describes him. God, the true God, anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. Who was Jesus? What did he do? He was a person who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed. Think of how many times Paul speaks to the fact that we are saved in order to do good works. Paul and Titus says, for the grace of God has appeared. We talked about that in the beginning. God's grace inviting us into the kingdom. It brings salvation for all people. But what does it do, Paul? What is salvation supposed to do? What does it mean to belong in the kingdom? Listen, it trains us to renounce ungodliness to renounce unrighteousness and injustice, to renounce worldly passions, self-love, self-care, self-preservation, self-righteousness, and rather to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the hope 
the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here's the gospel, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself, a people that belong to him who are passionate about doing good, who love good works. That's what Paul says the gospel does. We've talked about this before, but contrary to popular American Christian belief, the Bible is not about getting our sins forgiven and going to heaven. But again, see, that is a, that is a compartmentalizing. That's taking one part of the Bible. If you know Jesus, yes, your sins are forgiven. If you die before he comes back, yes, you will go to heaven. That's not the whole story. There is so much more. You have been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ with a mission and a calling, and that is to be human, to be a real human. You know, like Pinocchio, I'm a real boy. It's like, that's what God wants from you. You are a puppet. You are made of wood. You are broken and flawed, and you have been made new. You have been made whole. And now you are to live out that human wholeness. Largely, by living out this new humanity, this new creation, by being human with other humans. One cannot fail to see this if you actually read the Bible. It is about living in a whole new way, the flourishing way of God, the way God created us to live. See, as great of a standard as do unto others as you would have them do unto you or love your neighbor as yourself might sound, most of us live our lives in selfishness, self-seeking, self-preservation, as I said before, as Paul says in Titus. What we need are new hearts, new minds. We need, we need to be a new creation, a new humanity. And this is what is promised in and through the good news of Jesus Christ. I've been saying this in many ways before uh, already, but let me just say it one more time in a different way. Implicit in the understanding of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus has invited us and is inviting us into his kingdom and he offers us his righteousness. This is twofold. It is imputed. God puts something there that is not there. Every single one of us are out of relationship with God. And that's why our lives are filled with brokenness, hurt. That's why even though we want to live lives that are whole and we want to do the right thing, often we find that we don't. We, we live selfishly, right? Everybody's had that experience. We call it just being human, right? Brokenness. Uh, I fail to be what I want to be, to live up to even the standard I set for myself. And the problem with this is we are out of relationship with God. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're created for. We don't know what life is really about. And so God comes and he does a work in our hearts and he imputes his righteousness, which means that he gives us Jesus' relationship with the Father. That's what we're given. Didn't even deserve it. And Jesus gives us this relationship with the Father imputed righteousness. This means justification. If we were in the courtroom and all the wrong that we had ever done, murder, adultery, you name it, right? From the least to the greatest, God just, anvil comes down and says, cleared. Justified. Innocent before God. That is imputed to us, given to us. Why? Oh, because look at the cross. The man the man, the Messiah, there he is, bleeding, forsaken by everyone who called him friend, crying out, my father, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Scripture tells us that there Jesus was experiencing our life, the just deserts of our sin there on the cross, he was rejected, we are brought in. He takes our punishment, we get his blessing. He takes our relationship with the Father 
one of rebels and sinners, and we get his beloved sons and daughters in whom he is well pleased. That's the gospel. We're given justification. We're made children of God, adoption. But that's not all the gospel does. It also brings with it infused righteousness, new birth. That's what the Bible calls it. New birth or regeneration. New creation with new hearts, new minds, and a new spirit according to Jeremiah 24, 31. Also, Ezekiel talks about this. And this happens so that we become a new kind of people, his people, who do God's kingdom righteousness because they're his people. They're his kids. That's what they do. You know, Judah and Hudson and Evelyn are my kids. And it, isn't it uncanny, parents, how, like, it is not taught, and yet your children are copies of you. And sometimes it's freaky. Like, Hudson is Mr. Like, facial expression, and I can find, like, loads. My mother helps me with this. Finds loads of pictures as a kid where I'm like... You know, like every photo I'm in, I am making the weirdest face possible. And that's Hudson. And I didn't like, okay, kid, here's what you do. You know, somebody holds out a camera, you make the weirdest face you can. You know, like he just does it. And it is like uncanny how they exact they are. He's a copy of me. He's a, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, as we say, right? And also in the people of God, there is a family likeness. And yet, even with Hudson and Judah and Evelyn, there's a family likeness, but we still train them. This is what Brodersons live like. This is what, how Brodersons think about white wonder bread. This is what Brodersons think about breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is how Brodersons get ready for bed. This is how Brodersons plan out their day. You're like, you're a Broderson, so this is what we do. And that's what we find in the New Testament. We have been infused with the righteousness of God. We are his people, and yet we learn to be his people by practicing the family characteristics, the family values. This is, of course, what Paul is talking about in Romans. He says, when God comes into a life and does a work in your heart, when the Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart, you will find that you will fulfill the law, and you didn't even try to. You weren't like, okay, Exodus chapter 20, let's get out the checklist and let's go through all 400 and, you know, odd laws and make sure we're doing all right, you know? Resolution number 399. You know, like, you, didn't even, you weren't trying to do it in that way, and yet you come to the scripture and you find, I'm fulfilling the law. Listen to what Paul says. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh there on the cross in order that... The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. When we feed that new life, that new birth in us, we will begin to do what the Bible says without trying to necessarily fulfill every part of the Bible. We'll do it because God's spirit is in us. And that's what infused righteousness does. Now, starting in Matthew 5, 17, right? Jesus was laying out for this, us, this fulfilled or greater righteousness. You're part of the family in the kingdom. This is what it looks like to be family. And he talks to us about everything from anger to lust to marriage to fidelity to retaliation, forgiveness to righteous acts to charity to prayer, fasting, generosity, and judging others. See, Jesus is laying out for us what it means to be human and how we're to interact with other humans now that we're in the kingdom of God. And then he gives us this wonderful little piece of wisdom right here. You know what? Try this on. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them. You thought I forgot what I was teaching, huh? No, I didn't. I did it. I landed. I'm back. Whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. See, guys, when we just follow Jesus in the way of Jesus, follow in his steps, feed the spirit, put off, put on, like the New Testament says, 
we will fulfill the law and the prophets. We will live out that fulfilled and greater righteousness that Jesus has called us to. And so now he gives us this radically practical and simplified tool for assimilating his righteousness. I am so hot right now, I'm really sorry. Promise, this is the last layer I'm taking off. Um, (laughs) All right. This tool that Jesus gives us trains us not just to do, but to be. To become a certain type of people who do goodness and kindness to all. So let's talk about this. Okay, here's the tool. In personal relationship, all that Jesus' followers are being called to do is consult our own feelings. It's pretty simple. How would you like to be treated in this situation? You don't have to be learned. You don't have to be a mature Christian to practice this. But it does call for honest heart searching. Honest heart searching. Can you be honest with yourself? The golden rule is a call to personal heart searching and creativity. Whatever you want others to do for you, do also for them. You know, years ago, I I started pastoring in in the way that I do now as um, lead pastor, teaching pastor of refuge when I was 25 years old. I was inexperienced, ignorant. I had been married for just over a year, I think. Yep, just over a year. And um, something Grace and I experienced in that time, those early years of ministry, is that we did not have people to learn from. We didn't have people to consult. We didn't have people to confide in. Everybody was younger than us or our age. It's like, what do we do? I don't know. Just figure it out. You know? Yeah, I'm like, okay. What does it look like to do well in marriage? I don't know. What does it look like to help these parents raise their... I don't know. Never done it before. So I just taught the Bible because the Bible knows. God knows, thankfully. But all this to say, something Grace and I had resolved to do is to be for others what we wish we could have had in those seasons of life. Sometimes we just cannot... I don't know what it is in our pride or that we think that we've climbed the ladder or something like that. We can't go back. We can't even imagine what it's like to be single anymore. But remember what a doofus you were when you were single? Remember how selfish you were when you were single? Remember, and I'm not, this is not, I'm not saying this about the single. I'm just talking honestly about myself, truly. Just oblivious to people with kids, you know, just trying to have like a really deep conversation about my personal holiness with some guy that's got multiple kids, you know, and his kids are flying off the handle and I'm like, you're not paying attention to me. (laughs) It's like, yeah, no kidding, he's not paying attention to you, right? But honestly, just sometimes I, 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 what we need is that empathy to go back and to remember what it was like Gosh, what would I have wanted in those days? Oh, I would have wanted somebody to disciple me. I didn't know anything. I was hungry and I had no leaders. No one to care for me. That way, my dad, my dad definitely does. He lives 500 miles away, though. But, you know, to just go back, search your heart, search your history. When I was in that situation, what would I have wanted? You see how this creates incredible empathy? See how this, this creates a posture for us? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do for others what you wish someone would have done for you in those hard seasons of life. In the loneliness of singleness. Invite someone to your table. Show them hospitality. Cook them a three-course meal. Or something like that. You know what I mean? Just be hospitable, be kind, be gracious. When it comes to the inner workings of the church community, we often approach the church community asking what others can do for us rather than asking Jesus questions. How would I want to be treated by others? This question and vision can radically transform a community. It turns us from a self-seeking, you-serve-me culture and community to an at-your-service culture and community. 
When I was new to the church community, what did I want? I am so thankful to God for you individuals who have asked yourselves that question and now you serve and help out. Is it life-changing, right, to be a greeter at the door, to set up on a Sunday morning to serve in children's ministry? It's not necessarily life-changing, but it is the way of Jesus in even the smallest way. To do for others what you would have them do unto you. What did I want? I wanted a friend when I was new. Someone to welcome me. I wanted someone to talk to me when I first came. To ask honestly and sincerely about myself. I wanted somebody just to simply call me up and see how I'm doing. To go out to coffee with me. Amen. I feel that for sure. Do that for others then. Be part of building this culture in this church. Or you ask yourself this question, when I went through a hard season or situation, what did I need or want from others? Empathize, go back, remember. In friendship, how would I want to be treated? How would I like to be spoken to by my friend when there's a disagreement? I would like to be spoken to respectfully, honestly, sincerely. I would like to be given the benefit of the doubt by my friends. I think you would too. I would like to be listened to sincerely. You ever get the feeling that the person you're talking to isn't actually listening or does not actually care about what you're saying but is just ready to answer with their counter argument? That should not be the case with our relationships in the church. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Listen sincerely, respond patiently and lovingly. Here's one, parents. How would I have wanted my parents to have treated me when I messed up? Remember the karate kid? Yeah, you guys remember that? When I was a kid, I saw the karate kid. And we had a glass shower door. And I practiced karate kid in the shower. And I smashed that shower door into a thousand pieces. And you know what my dad didn't do? He didn't come in screaming, what happened? This moment he saw it, are you okay? That's what he asked, are you okay? I don't remember the rest, but I remember that. (laughs) I remember like thinking like, I'm dead. You don't do Karate Kid in the shower. (laughs) And his first response was grace. His first response was, and and the continued response was grace. How, How am I? Man, I need that in my parenting. My wife helps me, my kids help me, my dad helps me, my mom helps me. But so often, you know, I want to know, like, what happened, what broke, what's wrong, who did, you know. And I've been having to ask myself this question lately, I'm just being honest. How would I want my dad to respond to me when I was a kid? When I messed up with love and with grace. And parents, sometimes we think, you know, that... I don't know, we, we only see our parenting in one way, that, you know, we got to make sure this kid doesn't go out into the world and hurt other people. Yeah, that's good. It's a good standard. But we do that by cultivating love and, and a gracious, accepting, forgiving atmosphere. One that is concerned more about the personal relationship than the actions. In marriage... How would I like to be treated as a husband? So Grace and I got married once upon a time. And um, our marriage was awesome for the first three years because we didn't have any kids. Um, And I say that sincerely. Like, we just had so much fun. Every weekend we went to San Francisco. Every weekend that we could because I love the city. And we just did fun things. You know, listened to music, did things, served in ministry. We were very busy in ministry. But it was just easy. And sleeping was great. You know, you go to bed when you want and nobody wakes you up in between and you get up and then you do your thing. And seriously, this was a big one in our marriage, especially when babies came into the picture. 3 a.m., baby's crying, pooped his pants. It's like, you or me, you know? Like, you know, try to pretend like you didn't hear it. And But honestly... There were times where it was just like, 
thank God, the Spirit of God was like, what would I want somebody to do for me? I want somebody to get that baby, to change that baby, and put it back so I can go to sleep. All right, that's what I wanted. And so I was like, okay, do that for your wife then. Because she's doing all sorts of other stuff that I can't do. You know, you know what it is, right? <laughs> I wanted someone to get up and take care of the baby in the morning so I could get extra sleep. So what did I do? I got up with Judah in the mornings and we hung out in the living room. And this house was freezing. It was the worst. Um, anyway, so that's what I would do when I was conscious enough to think about it, right? But in marriage, what would I want? How do I want to be treated? This is a great heart-searching question. In my work, as a coworker, how do I want to be treated as a manager, a boss? How would I want to be treated? As an employee, how would I want to be treated? With my neighbor or my enemy, how would I want to be treated? See, Jesus' inward question is a simple but powerful tool to actually be agents of change in the world. To be culture makers by building cultures of empathy and kindness in our homes, in our churches, in our places of work, in our city. Following the golden rule first turns us inward, heart-searching, to build that empathy, that graciousness, that generosity with others, and then turns us outward toward our neighbor in love. And of course, isn't this exactly what Jesus has done for us? I mean, I know we've talked about it a lot, but Philippians 2, 5 through 11, it's exactly Jesus. He, he had all the riches, and he laid them aside. He had the place of safety and security. He had the relationship with the Father. He lays it all aside for us to bring us in. Jesus does this. We were out of relationship with the Father, and he took our place. He took the blow. He took the brunt. He sacrificed for us. I was at a homeschool meeting the other day, our kids' homeschool. Um, and we were at a homeschool meeting, and one of the dads was exhorting the other dads to come out and do this thing, and he says, it's a sacrifice. And I was really thankful he said that. Like, it's a sacrifice to do this. I was like, yeah, that's right, it is a sacrifice. Sacrifice I don't want to do. <laughs> and he said this, but it is a sacrifice worth doing. Worthy. And in that same way, the way of Jesus is a sacrifice, but it is a sacrifice worth doing because of what it does in shaping me and molding me into an image bearer of God, a follower of Jesus, for what it does in my home, what it does in my workplace, what it does in my neighborhood, what it does in my city. Yes, it is a sacrifice, but we are a people who have been greatly sacrificed for, and we can never forget that. The gospel is the root and the reason why we do everything that we do. Now, in conclusion, because I'm way past my time, at a time when politics and culture are so polarizing and toxic, I believe what our culture needs is not a people who recoil and go into hiding to protect our beliefs and our Christian subculture, but a people who are winsome, kind, and empathetic. Winsome, kind, and empathetic. They need the kingdom of God in the practice and manifestation of everyday life and circumstances. This is why, did you feel that it was a little tedious this morning? Walked you through just about every personal relationship you might ever have. We didn't talk about grandparents. We could go back, right? What does our culture need? They need to see the kingdom of God in the practice and manifestation of everyday life. That's where they need to see it. That's where they're going to see it. And this is simultaneously what we need if we are to be trained in true human wholeness and godliness. God in the morning. God at second breakfast. God at lunch. God in the afternoon. God in the evening. God in my sleeping. The way of Jesus in my marriage. The way of Jesus in my parenting. The way of Jesus in my singleness. The way of Jesus with my roommates. The way of Jesus at work to assimilate it into every part of our life. That is the call of the New Testament, to be infused 
and to practice now this new righteousness of the new humanity. This is what we need if we are to be trained in true human wholeness and godliness. And this is what Jesus is calling to. Lord, I pray for refuge this morning. And Lord, I honestly believe that most of the problems in our life are from not believing the gospel enough. And so I first and foremost pray that the truth of the gospel would go down deep into our hearts this morning. Lord, that we would existentially know the love of the Father through the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, that we would know that it was for us, that it's our wounds that Jesus was taking on the cross. It was our place. It is by his stripes that we are healed, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. the righteous for the sinner, that we might become the righteousness of God. And I pray, Lord, as that gospel word goes deep into the soil of our hearts, Lord, that it would begin to transform the way that we think and act and speak, and Lord, that we would take hold of that, that we would lay hold of eternal life, that we would put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would put on the acts and works and fruit of the Spirit. Lord, that we would practice the way of Jesus and see it infiltrate and assimilate into every part of our life so that we can live out that human flourishing that you've called us to. Lord, so that we can be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, that men and women would be attracted to, that we'd be that salt that would preserve and affect those around them. So Lord, we pray for continual and even greater effectiveness in our city as we follow the way of Jesus together. And Lord, this morning also, would you do a work of convicting us and healing those broken relationships that we talked about this morning? Would you compel us by your grace to go and reconcile with one another and to be made whole? We ask this for the sake of of Jesus because of his blood, because of his body given for us. Amen.